0: If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Zechariah to chapter 11, verse 9. It's kind of hard to contemplate, but in Zechariah 11, verse 9, God says, I am not going to take care of you. I am not going to deliver you. I'm not going to protect you. I'm going to let you be taken into captivity. I'm going to let them do what they do to you. And then chapter 12, he comes and defends them. Brings them home and protects them. What happened between chapter 11, verse 9 and chapter 12? What did they do? They repented. They repented. Some people say, well, when, when you repent, God changes his mind. No, that's just God's nature. What does God do when you repent? He forgives. When He forgives, He restores. He gives the blessings. And that's why Zechariah is not a sad book to read, because it ends in great majesty and power. So today, turn with me, please, to Zechariah chapter 11, verse 9. Right after verse 8, when God says, I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. What are the three shepherds of Israel? Prophets, priests, and kings. That's talking about the destruction of Israel when they go into captivity. And there were false prophets in the city of Jerusalem telling the people, Oh, that would never happen. God won't allow it. And here's what God says in verse 9. Then I said, I will not feed you. They're in the midst of a siege. There's no food. There's no water. They're starving. They're dying of thirst. And they're flipping their middle finger at God. And God says, I won't feed you. Let what is dying die. Why are they dying? Because they rejected God. How could they have lived? If they'd repented. But they won't. Because they enjoy their sin too much. They say, if we repent, we have to stop sinning. Because, you know what, that's what repentance is. And what do we see last night in the Hebrew that doesn't come out in the English? Put in your notes, if you were in here last night, the Hebrew word for repentance to return is teshuvah, T-E-S-H-U-V-A-H. They instead backslid, and the word for backslid is mashuvah. Only one letter different between Teshuvah and Meshuvah. It's that close. If you're backsliding away, change that one letter and come back to God. Let what is dying die, and what is perishing perish. Let those who are left eat each other's flesh. That literally happened. They literally turned to cannibalism. Is that abhorrent to God? That is so abhorrent. Did they care that it was abhorrent to God? No. So God said, I'll just give you over. Now occasionally a verse raises my blood pressure. So i got to be careful not to do too much Bible study before I see the doctor next time. Ugh. Verse 10, and I took my staff, beauty. Remember, he's got two stamps. And cut it in two. That I might break the covenant which I had made with all the peoples. Can I hear a gasp? God doesn't break commandments. God doesn't break covenants. Psalm 89 verse 34 says what? My covenant I will not break. Here it says God's a liar. That God will break his covenant. Would you believe that's not what the Hebrew says? Why would they translate it in a way to make God a liar? Because it's got to fit their doctrine. That's exactly right. Doesn't doctrine take precedence over Bible? It does in many denominations, but it sure shouldn't. What do you do if your denominational doctrine doesn't match the Bible? Find another place to go or change the doctrine was what I was hoping for. But yeah, that doesn't happen very often. The word here that's translated as break means to make ineffectual. It's made ineffectual because who broke it? The people broke it. God had a covenant that said, If you, then I. What happens when if you fails? Then there's no then I. And that's what it means. If you will not worship me and have me as your God then go away go worship who you want and that was the whole point Abraham was originally called Avram right? God called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees Chaldees is Babylon he called him out of the pagan idolatry of Babylon to come worship the true and living God what happens when his descendants decide now we'd rather worship the gods of Babylon doesn't go back. Go worship them. How much blessing do those idols give to the people when they go back? None. It's to call them to repentance so they can see with their own eyes and their own senses that pagan idolatry does nothing. And this covenant in verse 10 is a covenant of protection. What did God say? If you'll come up before me and worship before me three times in a year, what? No one will covet your land. Because God would protect them. If they don't want God as God, He removes that hedge of protection. And who's coming? Answers Babylon. Go back to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. Verse 24. We'll start in 23 because that starts the promise. Three times in the year, all your men shall appear before the Lord. The Lord the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. Have they been doing that in the days that Zechariah writes? The answer is no. So God will remove his hedge of protection. Not because he moved, but because they did. Now in verse 11 it says, so it was broken on that day. Ooh, see that phrase, on that day? That's not what the Hebrew says. It says, in that day. In that day. What day is that? Day of the Lord. Does that mean that come the day of the Lord, the people are not going to go up three times in the year? To keep the appointed times of God? To have his protection? That's exactly what it means. Why is it that we have the Psalm 83 war followed by the battle of Gog and Magog? What's that? It's to bring Israel to repentance. It's to remind them that if you want God's protection, he must be your God. Does the scripture say, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord? Our nation was founded on the principle that God is the Lord. Is that still the principle today? So should we expect God's protection in World War III? Wouldn't it be nice if our nation repented before that? So it was broken on that day. Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. What does he mean by the poor of the flock? Those that are penniless? Those that are humble and read and study the word and look toward God. Turn to the book of Matthew chapter 5 to the Beatitudes. It's the same kind of poor that the Lord talks about in the Beatitudes. Mr. Wayne? Yes, ma'am.
1: So when we look at that in that day we're looking at a double application of our current day and of their day.
0: Correct. How many prophecies have dual fulfillments? Many. What does Ecclesiastes say? What's happened before will happen again. So starting in Matthew chapter 5 verse 2 Then he, Messiah Yeshua, opened his mouth and taught them the multitude saying What's that word saying? it's a quote what does that tell you about the original language here Hebrew blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven does that mean those who don't have any spirit no it means those that humble themselves before the Lord blessed are those who mourn are they mourning because I don't know Atlanta lost in the last football game no they're mourning over the sins grieving over the sins of the nation For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Does that mean the sissified? No, it means again those that are humble. Those who take on a godly nature. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be filled. Do you realize that each of these verses is about the same category of people? Just describing their characteristics in another way. So what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled? Does that sound like what the Lord said when he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, then all these things shall be added unto you? Yeah. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. What does the scripture say? If you will not forgive others, you won't be forgiven either. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those are the lawless ones, right? Right? No, quite the opposite. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What are the peacemakers doing? Preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel. Exactly.
2: Between God
0: and man. Peace between God and man and between Jew and Gentile. Yeah. <laughs> How many times does Paul try and say, it doesn't matter if you were born a Jew or a Gentile, what matters is your faith in God. And how does God test and evaluate your faith? Just like he did Abraham. What did God say in Genesis chapter 22 when he said, now I know, now I know. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you try and walk uprightly in this world, does the world patch on the back and say, well done? Or do they kick you in the shins? Okay, so let's get back to Zechariah, chapter 11, verse 11. So it was broken in that day. Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me. There are still some who have faith, like Zechariah. They knew that it was the word of the Lord. What's that mean they knew it was the word of the Lord? Had God told them that if they turned away from him he'd remove his hedge of protection and go into captivity? All the way back in Deuteronomy 28. So those who knew the word of the Lord said yeah we're getting exactly what God said we're going to get. They also know the remedy. And what is that remedy? Repent. (laughs) On to verse 12. Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages thirty pieces of silver. Does that verse look like it's completely out of context? It looks like it, but it doesn't. It's not out of context. What God's looking for is repentance. Repentance comes through faith in Messiah. So God throws in a verse here about the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah. What is 30 pieces of silver? And please don't say one more than 29. Go to to Exodus 21. It's the price of a slave. Right? Exodus 21 verse 32. If the ox gores a male or female servant, both worth the same, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. Exodus chapter 21 verse 32. Why does the ox get stoned? The ox is a dumb animal.
1: Because
0: it, it shed human blood. How much does God value the life of a human being? Tim, it's very valuable. Such that even an animal who takes the life of a human being is to forfeit its own. So let's go to Matthew chapter 26 and see why I say this is about Messiah course you already knew it was. Matthew chapter 26, verse 15. How is the Bible best interpreted by the Bible? Mm -hmm. Exodus 26, verse 15. Matthew chapter 26, verse 15. Thank you. So just for that, we'll start in verse 14 and get a running start. (laughs) Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot. Can you go, boo? Went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Judas Iscariot was one of the twelve. He has lived with Messiah for more than three years. Has seen the miracles. Has heard the sermons. So what does that teach us? Does everyone who hears the gospel respond to it? No. Remember Messiah himself said there are four kinds of hearts and only one of the four will actually take hold of the gospel and give it root, and produce fruit. They say that of the twelve apostles, how many were relatives of Messiah? Eleven, all but Judas Iscariot. They were all from Galilee except one, and that was Judas Iscariot. Hmm. Alright, back to Zechariah chapter 11. So verse 12 seems to be completely out of context, but it's not. It's just there so that we know that repentance is through Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection. There's how many ways? One. Give me a verse. John fourteen six. Messiah said what? I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Verse 13, and the Lord said to me, throw it, that is the 30 pieces of silver, to the potter. That princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Can you believe that's in Zechariah? Let's go to Matthew 27 and see what happened to those 30 pieces of silver that they gave to Judas Iscariot. Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 10. How did God tell us in Isaiah that we would know that he's God? Because only he can tell us the end from the beginning. What year approximately did Zechariah write? About 500-ish BCE, so about 2,500 years ago. Or about 500 years before Messiah was crucified. How many of you could tell me? Just pick somebody at random, 500 years in the future, and tell me exactly how they die and the consequences Nobody could do that. But look what God did. Matthew 27, verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer. Well, you might say, Wayne, why do you keep kicking the, the dead horse on that topic? Because I've had people just in the last week write and say, how can you possibly believe that the Bible is true?
1: Hmm.
0: It's just a bunch of stories. Let's read. Verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful, not repentant, remorseful, and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. He thinks this is going to clear him of the guilt of the death of God's innocent son, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that? to us meaning who cares that you sinned against God by betraying innocent blood they don't look at themselves and go oh wait a minute we're guilty too no it's all you you did it and you see to it which means hey it's your problem problem. don't come to us then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself Here's a place where people say, see the New Testament's unreliable. Because it says later that he fell on a stump and broke open. Did he die from falling on a stump and breaking open or did he hang himself? The answer is yes. When you and I hear hanging, we think of the Old West and the gallows with the big rope. That's not what hanging was back in those days. Hanging was to be impaled. 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 So when he falls on the stump and it goes through his body, he's being impaled on the tree. That's hanging. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it's not lawful to put them back into the treasury because they're the price of blood. Look at their hypocrisy. We're about to kill an innocent man because of our pride and arrogance. But boy, we don't want to be guilty of, of taking this money back into the treasury. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in it. What did Zechariah say the silver would be used for? The potter. They bought the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called Akeldama, it says in some translations. It means the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, Whom they of the children of Israel priced and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Jeremiah didn't say that. Zechariah did. They were together.
2: together.
0: Yeah. So they would just refer to the book of the prophets as Isaiah or Jeremiah or something and figure the Bible in those days was divided into three parts the law, the prophets, and the writings. They just mean it's in the book of the prophets. Okay, back to Zechariah. Now that you've seen both verses 12 and 13, is there any doubt about what Zechariah is writing about Messiah and his role that will be played in the redemption and salvation of Israel? No doubt. Verse 14, then I cut into my other staff Bonds. You remember what bonds was about? Yeah, destroyer judgment. Uh-huh. That I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. In Zechariah's day, Israel's gone. So what does it mean to break the bond? Between Judah and Israel? What are your thoughts?
2: They would not be would be be reunited.
0: That they're never going to be reunited until Messiah returns. Yeah, it's in Ezekiel chapter 37 that they are reunited. Let's go back to Ezekiel chapter 37. That means for 2700 years now. Israel and Judah have been disassociated. Good word. You must be a doctor. <laughs> do you think it has to do with the uh, that middle wall of separation mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2? Do you think it has to do with the middle wall of separation in Ephesians chapter 2 in a way? With, you know, with Gentile believers being grafted into Israel. Gentile believers being grafted into Israel.
1: There's that animosity
0: that exists. That animosity that exists. Same between Judah and Israel, Right. There's a great animosity. And Ezekiel chapter 37 tells us when that animosity is going to end. They'll be separated until verse 15. Ezekiel 37, 15. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, right from the lips of the Lord, as for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. That's the southern kingdom. Stick, wood, tree, tree all same word, essentially eights, and it represents the throne. It means there's a separate throne for Judah than there is for Israel ever since the death of Solomon. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, for all the house of Israel, his companions. That's the northern kingdom. Two separate thrones, two separate kingdoms, 2,700 years apart. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick. That means they become one kingdom again under one throne, one ruler, one sovereign. (laughs) Susie, if you're talking, you're breaking all up. Sometimes mics just come open. Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions. I'll join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick in my hand. And they shall be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. That is, the people will literally see them write the names on the sticks. How many of you would sit there and go, Why are you doing that? How many of you just take logs for your fireplace and write names on them at random? No, you don't do that. Then say to them, thus says the Lord God. It's actually my Lord, the Lord. Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone. And will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. This is the complete final regathering of Israel. Has that happened yet? No. How do we know still Jews in the there's still Jews in the United States? Yeah, look around the room. And I'll make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all. Any idea who that king might be? Our Messiah Yeshua. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. So that is coming, and it's coming soon. Go back to Zechariah chapter 11, verse 15. And the Lord said to me, Next, take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. That word foolish really means perverse. An evil, wicked shepherd. What was God calling the leaders of Judah? Bad shepherds. Bad shepherds. Verse 16, for indeed I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that still stand. Why would God raise up prophets, priests, and kings that don't lead Israel right? Deuteronomy 13. Hmm. Let's go back and look at Deuteronomy 13. It explains why when Peter heard a voice from heaven say, Rise, Peter, kill and eat, he said, What? Uh Uh-uh. Not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1: If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder. What is that, a sign or a wonder? A miraculous thing that's going to wow you. Consider in Revelation chapter 13, the false prophet calls down fire from heaven. How many of you would be impressed if I stood up today and called down fire from heaven in your midst? Odd to be impressed. But God says, if that prophet is trying to lead you away from God, don't be impressed. Verse 2, And the sign of the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known. Let us serve them, which means to obey anyone other than God. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Why did Peter say, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean? He knows it's a test from God, but what's he saying? I will be obedient to you. I will not break your commandments. I don't care if I hear a voice from heaven. Whose voice was it? Doesn't say. Could have been Satan calling from heaven. Could have been anything calling from heaven. But the point is, Verse 4, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him. What does it mean to fear him? Obey him. Keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And we're going to come back to the rest of that later. So let's go back to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 16. It ends by saying, but he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. Do you remember when we recently read Ezekiel chapter 34 verses one to 10? That's about the very same thing. If you don't remember, let's go look. Ezekiel 34. Mm -hmm. Ezekiel 34 verses one to 10. It's because of Ezekiel 34 that in the New Testament, Messiah feeds the multitudes. And let's see why. Start in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, or it's actually what? My Lord, the Lord, to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Three times at the end of the book of John, Messiah says to Peter, what? Feed the mosh sheep. You eat the fat, meaning the best of them, and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken." nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. When Moses was in charge of the flock, they followed Moses. Sometimes they rebelled, but they followed Moses. But when there's no shepherd, what do the sheep do? They go the wrong direction. They go wherever they want to go. Each man did what was right in his own eyes. And they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. So let's go down to verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, my Lord, the Lord. Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. This was Messiah's first coming, trying to gather the sheep back together. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the days among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. I'll bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I'll bring them to their own land. Again, dual fulfillment happened anciently, will happen again soon. I'll feed them on the mountains of Israel and the valleys and all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture. And their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. Where did Messiah feed the multitudes? On the mountains that were around the Sea of Galilee. There they shall lie down in a good fold. In our English Bibles, it says they told the multitudes to sit down. But if you read the Greek, the Greek says he told them to lie down. Hopefully they didn't translate it as sit down instead of lie down because they didn't want people to see the connection. But here's the connection. In a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel, I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. Let's flip up to John 10. Verse 14. Now let's start in 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Did Messiah give his life for the sheep? He most certainly did. Now verse 14. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. See that phrase and am known by my own. Go to John seventeen three. What's it mean to know the Lord? Eternal life. Eternal life. You've been reading a hit. <laughs> John seventeen three, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Yeshua the Messiah, whom you have sent. And then you have to say, Gee, it'd be nice if there was a test in the Bible how we could know if we know Him or not. That's First John 2. So turn up to First John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, which means I have eternal life, and does not keep his commandments as a liar and the truth is not in him. It breaks my heart every time I hear a preacher talk about that verse and say, oh, that verse is just wrong. Ignore it. How much of God's word is wrong? So let's go back to Zechariah. Verse 16 of chapter 11. Verse 16, for indeed... I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that still stand. Who will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hosts in pieces. Reads just like Ezekiel 34. But God says, woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. If you're not a horse, woe is a bad thing. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. Did the last king of Judah have his eyes put out right before he was taken into captivity? Right after all his sons were put to death? His arm shall completely wither, that is, all of his sons were put to death. And his right eye shall be totally blinded. Are there other scriptures that talk about this worthless shepherd? Isn't that a
2: picture
0: of the It'll be a picture of the anti-messiah. It will be. But turn back to Isaiah chapter 56. While
2: we're turning, Brother Wayne, are you saying that the arm in verse 17 refers to the children? Yep. Okay, thank you.
0: Yep. What was Jacob's last son called? Benjamin, son of my right hand. The right hand, the strength, referring to the sons that will descend from him. Yep. Isaiah chapter 56. Right after talking about the Gentiles who come into the kingdom, we come to verse 9 says, all you beasts of the field, come to devour all you beasts in the forest. That is to take Israel captive. His watchmen, Israel's watchmen are blind. Not very good watchmen. watchmen. They're all ignorant. Hosea 4 says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. They're all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Can you imagine having a watchdog that can't bark? Not much use. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yes, they're greedy dogs which never have enough. And they're shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain from his own territory. Come one says, I'll bring wine we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. So why were they not leading the flocks of Israel to God? Why were they not protecting them from that which was to come? They were too interested in their own pleasure. Okay. Let's go back to Zechariah. The last three chapters, 12 to 14, are a unit. They are the final prophecy. Starting in verse 12 to 17 of Zechariah 11, what was Zechariah 11 about? It was about the coming of Messiah, right? And the establishment of his kingdom. That's what verses 12 to 14 are about. How does the establishment of the messianic kingdom come to be? And in chapters 12 to 14, the phrase, in that day, what day? The day the Lord, occurs 16 times. And the day of the Lord that expression appears 17 times. So between those two, talking about the coming of the day of the Lord, that's how many? 33 times in three chapters. Does that give you some idea, even before we start, what those chapters are going to be about? Yipper. Hmm... Doc Nancy mentioned. Do I see the false Messiah in those verses at the end of verse 11? I do. But let's add some verses to it before we start chapter four, 12, verse 1. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Because in Daniel chapter 7, we get an idea of the timing. Of the coming of that anti-messiah, she called him. I often use the phrase the false messiah. But anti-messiah is a good term too. What does anti mean? Against or in place of. Down chapter 7, verses 23 to 27. And he said, the fourth beast, that fourth beast is Rome. So the messianic kingdom could not have been established in the days of Babylon or Medo-Persia or Greece. Not until Rome. The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. It's not just a kingdom, it's an empire. It's a worldwide dominion empire. Which shall be different from all other kingdoms. And shall devour the whole earth. Trample it and break it in pieces. The Roman Empire was not conquered, it fell apart into pieces. Continues today in the Roman Catholic Church. The ten horns are ten kings which shall arise from this kingdom. Which kingdom? From Rome. And another shall rise after them, that another is the anti-messiah or false messiah. He shall be different from the first ones. It doesn't say how, just that he'll be different. And shall subdue three kings. If you take ten kings and overthrow three, how many are left? Eight. Including the one who overthrew the three. I know it was a trick question. Sorry. But it's why in Revelation 13 we see a beast that has seven heads and ten crowns. Because the false messiah took three of the crowns. He's the essence of the beast. And another shall rise after him. shall be different from the first one. shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words. That's Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Against the Most High. What's the Most High? Is that the President of the United States? No. It's against God. Who would dare blaspheme God? Somebody not smart. Somebody who's led by Satan shall persecute the saints of the Most High. Revelation fourteen twelve. We know about the saints. They keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. If there's anything Satan or hates more, it's the commandments of God and faith in Messiah. I hear a lot of theologians today say that God abolished the commandments. It's Satan that makes people want to keep them. Where in the scripture does Satan ever want us to keep a commandment of God? Never. That's why he goes on to say, he shall intend to, which means what? To try to. Because you can't change God's laws, but he's going to try. To change times, that's the feasts and festivals, that's Shabbat, that's Passover, etc. And the law, that's the Torah. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Oh my, that tells us exactly When the false messiah gets indwelt by Satan in Revelation chapter 12. For how long is time times and half a time? Three and a half years. So it's right at the midpoint of the seven year tribulation period. That Satan gets kicked out of heaven and dwells the false messiah and the great tribulation is on. And what does Satan want most of all at that point? To kill all of the Jewish believers so they will not cry what? Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. If he can keep the Jewish believers from crying for Messiah to come back, what will happen? Messiah won't return because he said he wouldn't. That would mean Satan would win. How many of you are afraid? Maybe Satan's going to win. No, Ah, we read the end of the book. So, verse 26, but, this is a good but. The court will be seated. What court? That's the one in verses 13 and 14. And they shall take away his dominion. Whose dominion? Satan's dominion with the false Messiah. To consume and destroy it forever. How long does Messiah's kingdom go? Forever and ever without end. But Satan's days will be done. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. Hmm. His kingdom. So here is being referred to as the most high, who is it? It's Yeshua. Yeshua is being called here the most high. Is Yeshua God from all eternity? His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. That's Isaiah chapter 9, what? Verse 7. Lamar Bay, remember Lamar Bay? And all dominions shall serve and obey him. Satan's defeat will be complete and total. It's described in great detail at the end of Revelation chapter 19 and beginning of, verse, of chapter 20. Don't turn there though. Let's go back to Isaiah. I was listening to a teaching this morning that has Isaiah 14 wrong. In my opinion. Isaiah 14 verse 12. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. And the, the preacher said, that's talking about Genesis chapter 1. Satan was kicked out of heaven. He's never been allowed back in heaven since then. Uh-huh. Not, true. Not true. In Job 14, when God calls the angels before him, Satan's among them. He doesn't get kicked out of heaven until Revelation chapter 12. So this is prophetic about Revelation chapter 12. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said into your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol. Sheol's the grave. Satan's an angel. Angels don't die. But the false Messiah is human. He dies and gets cast down into Sheol. Says to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms, what's that talking about? That's talking about the false Messiah and the wars in the great tribulation period. Who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities. Who did not open the house of his prisoners. This is not Genesis chapter 1. How many cities were there in Genesis chapter 1 to destroy? There were none. There were none. But these verses are written in perfect tense. Completed action over and done. But there's something in Biblical Hebrew called what? The prophetic perfect. When something is so sure to be fulfilled in the future, God writes it as if it's already done. Because in his mind, it's a certainty. There's no question to it. It's going to happen. Let's go back to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. And get out your pencils. Get ready to start marking your Bibles. (coughs) Don't you hate it when things are translated poorly? Verse 1, the burden. The word burden is Massah in Hebrew. It means a prophecy that just hurts the heart of the prophet to give it. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. So who's the prophet prophesying against? No. That's what the translators want you to think. But it's not. It's the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. It's what the nations are going to do to Israel that is the burden. The prophet does not want to see the nations of the world come against Israel. But they're going to. And then the nations of the world are going to suffer God's judgment.
1: The so Brother Wayne, instead of against, we should say concerning.
0: Should say upon, about, or concerning. The Hebrew word is all, if you're familiar with the word all. It means upon, about, on, over, concerning, etc. Thank you. Yep. Go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. In the day of the Lord, the Lord comes to defend Israel. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. The earth was without form and void. It's tohu and bohu, if you know those two Hebrew words. And darkness was on the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now change that and say, and the spirit of God was hovering against the face of the waters. And you go, no, uh -uh, that's not right. Same word. Also Genesis chapter 1 verse 7. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were against the firmament. No, it's above or over the firmament. And it was so. I wonder what that says. Since I don't know. I'm going to pretend I didn't write it. Okay. So go back to Zechariah chapter 12 verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens. Lays the foundation of the earth. And forms the spirit of man within him. Where did the prophet, through the word of the Lord, just direct us back to? Genesis Genesis chapter 1. The same God who promised to deliver Israel is the God who called heaven and earth into being. Has God ever changed his mind and said, well, let's just let them all go away? Let eternity just wink out? No, of course not this word stretches out the heavens. Let's go look at some uses of that word. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. Isaiah chapter 22, I'm sorry, chapter 40, verse 22. But before we read verse 22, we need to know who it's talking about. So look at verse 18. Isaiah 40, 18 says, to whom then will you liken God? So who's this section of scripture about? God. Now go to verse 22. It was he who sits above the circle of the earth. Hmm. I thought the earth was flat. No, it's never been flat. And God knew it wasn't flat. And its inhabitants, if you're an inhabitant of the earth, put up your hand, are like grasshoppers, that is in comparison to God. God stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. What is the first heaven? Do you guys know what we mean by the heavens and why it's plural? What's that? The atmosphere that we breathe. If God had not put the atmosphere around the world, how long would people have lasted? Yeah, not long at all. We'd have just suffocated and died. What is the Hebrew word for breath? Ruach. Breath, wind, and spirit are the same. Do you remember in Genesis 1 God's Spirit was hovering over the earth? I think the air we're breathing is God's Spirit. We'll find out when we get there and say, is that why you use the same word? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. Who redeemed you by his shed blood? Messiah did. So that word Lord, the four Hebrew letters, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, we call the Tetragrammaton. That's our Lord, that's our Messiah, that's our Redeemer. And he who formed you from the womb, meaning from the time of conception. God considers you a person from the time of conception. How many states have since the overturning of Roe v. Wade added constitutional provisions for abortion up to the time of birth? I don't know why they limit it there. Why don't they say up until age 18? You get tired of your teenagers, you just put them to death and say it's a late-term abortion. You're still killing a human being. And what does God say about murderers? Do they have eternal life? No, so we need some repentance going on out there. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens. Here's what I want you to see, all alone. Who helped the Lord stretch out the heavens? No one. Who spreads abroad the earth by myself. Let's go back to um, Zechariah 12 to look at another word. It says, thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth. Let's go to Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38. Yes, ma'am.
1: That kind of shoots the Trinity in the foot again. That
0: kind of shoots the Trinity in the foot again. The doctrine of the Trinity comes out of Roman Catholicism. The scripture says God is one. And the New Testament, would you believe the disciples said, Show us the Father? And Messiah said, I'm paraphrasing, not quoting. Are you that stupid? You've seen me. You've seen the Father. Because we're one. Job 38 verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? This is the Lord talking to Job. Job's been mouthing off against the Lord. The Lord says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Is that tongue-in-cheek? Yep, it's tongue-in-cheek. Who stretched the line upon it? That's the measuring line. To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? Who are the morning stars? That's the angels. And all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who are those sons of God? Yeah, it's talking about the angels, the angelic hosts. Go to the book of Psalms 102, Psalm 102, Psalm 102, verse 25. And before I read 25, to know who you refers back to, we have to look back at verse 24. It says, I said, oh my God. So who's it about? It's about God. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, Like a cloak, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. For some reason, all of a sudden, I'm getting an an echo. I might need to mute
2: everybody.
0: A ringing. Let me mute everybody just in case. No offense, everybody out there. Let's go on next to Psalm 104, verse 5. I bet you know who the U is referring to now, don't you? Yeah, still ringing. Hmm. Let me move that away a little bit. Okay. Psalm 104, verse 5. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. Have you ever laid on the ground at night? Feeding the mosquitoes. No, ignoring that part. But looking up at the heavens and saying, you know, the earth is running around the sun at incredible speeds. Why doesn't it just break loose and go out across the universe? Because God said, stay where I put you. That's what it says here. You lay the foundation of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. The earth is where it is. Have you heard the scientists say that if we were just a little bit closer to the sun, it'd be too hot to sustain life. If we were just a little bit farther out, it'd be too cold to sustain life. God put the earth exactly where it needed to be. Okay. You're about to tell me that was just an accident, right?
2: No, 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 no. no.
0: It just happened. The difference
2: between our perspective year from
1: earth and how the sidereal year is if you were observing the rotation of earth around the sun, 365 days versus 360 days. It's still there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Was it Copernicus that was put to death by the Catholic Church for saying that the... Earth revolved around the sun instead of vice versa. Mm. We should listen to God. Let's go to the Lord, book of Proverbs. Yes, Rachel.
1: You went over uh, first heaven being our atmosphere, and
2: I know the third heaven is where God dwells. The, the others where the stars are. Thank you.
0: Yep. Once you get beyond the oxygen, and you're out into where you would die of asphyxiation, that's the second heaven. Proverbs eight, Proverbs eight, verse twenty nine. So an interesting meme on Facebook recently that showed the water level at Ellis Island where the Statue of Liberty is a hundred plus years ago and today. And you know what? It's the same. Why is it the same? Because of Proverbs verse eight, chapter eight, verse twenty-nine. When he when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters would not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. God told the oceans how far they can go and that they can go no farther. I've read scientific reports from about 125 years ago that said the polar ice caps are melting and within 5 or 10 years California is going to be totally underwater. And you know what? I've walked Redondo Beach is still where it was 125 years ago. The waters haven't come up and swallowed California as much as we might wish it would. (laughs) Hasn't done it. Because God told the oceans, you can go here and that's your limit. And that's where they are today. Let's go back to Zechariah chapter 12. And God forms the spirit of man within him. Hmm. Let's do some more cross references to this verse. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 48. This verse is to tell us not only of God's power and the fact that he's the creator. But also the fact that when God says something is going to be forever, it's going to be forever. And when God promises he's going to restore Israel and bring them back to the land and reign over them, it doesn't matter how long it's been. When you have pastors that stand up and say God cast off Israel forever, replaced them with the church, what they're saying is God couldn't do it. He promised it, but he wasn't strong enough. That's nonsense. Isaiah forty-eight, thirteen. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand is stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. What's that mean, they stand up together? They do whatever I tell them to. They do what I tell them to. God spoke and they did it.
1: So, where are we?
0: That was Isaiah chapter 48, verse 13. Verse 13. I want to add to that Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. Which you guys all know, and I know you know it, that there's somebody out there and go to Meeting Land or online who doesn't know it. Genesis 1,
1: 14.
0: Before I go there obey
1: that's why they can be called to be heaven and earth and
0: called to be a witness Is that uh, when it says I call heaven and earth to be a witness it means because they will still be there okay. yeah if somebody heard Moses speak in Deuteronomy 30 they're going to be dead long before these things come to pass but heaven and earth will still be here Genesis 1 you guys know this verse and its significance but I just want to talk about it a little more then God said, That's how all of creation was done. Then God said, Does God stutter? Then why did it take six days to create the heavens and the earth? Setting out, out a pattern for the Sabbath. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens. That's the stars, the sun, and the moon. To divide the day from the night. That's what the sun and the moon do. If the sun's up, is it day or night? We know that. It's day. And let them be for signs and seasons. But the word seasons is wrong. The word season in Hebrew is zaman. That's summer, spring, winter, and fall. This word is moedim. It's the appointed times. And for days and years. So in verse 14, there are no people on this earth. None. Not Jews, Gentiles, or anybody else. I won't make any jokes about gender, but... There's nobody. God created the sun, moon, and stars so that we would know when the Sabbath is. When we would know when Passover is. When we would know when Shavuot is. When we know when Tabernacles is. Does that mean they're a temporary thing for the Jewish people alone from Exodus chapter 20 for a few hundred years? The answer is No. These are for all people, for all time. And that's why it tells us in verse 14 that they were created before any beings at all. Where do we first learn that animals are clean or unclean? That's Genesis chapter, we'll go to 7. The story starts in 6. But it's real specific in verse 7. Chapter 7, then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each, it's actually seven pairs. Hebrew says, Sheva, Sheva, Ishva, Ishto. Seven pairs of every clean animal, a male and his female, actually says a man and his wife, a husband and his wife, because they're breeding pairs. And two each or one pair of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Does anybody see Noah standing back and going, what do you mean by clean and unclean? You don't, do you? So for people to say in Exodus chapter 20, God tells us we can't eat unclean foods because, well, that was just for a limited time for a certain set of people. Who didn't have refrigeration at the time. And if you leave pork out in the sun, it goes bad. But if you leave beef or lamb out in the sun, it's just fine for weeks at a time. Yeah, no. That's nonsense. But in Genesis chapter 7, are there Jews and Gentiles? The answer is no. There's just one type of people. And if you take just one pair of the unclean animals on the ark and then you eat one... You have a species that goes out of existence. So why just one pair of unclean animals? Because nobody's going to eat them. Nor will they sacrifice them to God. You cannot sacrifice to God any unclean animal. Let's go back to Isaiah. If I didn't say keep a finger there. Oops, just rewind the tape and say put a finger there. Go to chapter 51, verse 13. Whoa. Isaiah fifty one thirteen begins, and you, you know there's a woodshed experience coming. And you forget the Lord your maker. Who creates the human body? God does. Who puts his spirit of breath into us? He does. You forget the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You have fear continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he was prepared to destroy. And where's the fury of the oppressor? Meaning you're afraid of men, but you're not afraid of me? Who stretched out the heavens and the earth? Who created all things? Who can destroy not just the body, but the soul in the lake of fire forever? God says, really? Again, chapter 51, verse 16. And I put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. His point is the same God who created the heavens and the earth created Israel to be a people separated unto him. The man's birth name was not Israel, it was Jacob. God doesn't change his name to Israel until he has a personal experience and develops faith in God. The children of Israel are all those who have like faith. Go to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. It's not just the Old Testament that says God created and sustains all these things.
2: It's interesting that it's a con- here appears to be a continuing act. Plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth, and he's saying this after he has already done that.
0: Right. It is a continuing voice. And the Bible is very clear about that. And science, if the Lord's voice ever ceased, so would eternity. And you know what scientists have found lately?
2: They, they are finding... I mean, they, they cannot talk about astronomy without the stretching of the heavens. Yeah. They, they repeatedly come back to what God revealed in Genesis yep. over and over. It's just yep. amazing. The foundations of the earth... But when you get to the spirit, i have a comment too. Okay, dark
0: energy. They have found that dark energy looks like a voice being propagated. Yep. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 10. No, I want to start in 8, because 8, oh, it says, But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So what does God call Yeshua? God. Calls him God. Verse 10. And you Lord. So God and Lord here interchangeable. This is the Tetragrammaton. In the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. Again. This is talking to Yeshua. You Lord. He calls him Lord and says you in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail, meaning never an end. And the Lord is the same from the beginning in Genesis 1 as he is to the end of time, if there ever is an end to time. Is that pretty cool or what? Let's go back to Zechariah 12 and go to verse two. Zechariah 12, verse two. Actually, you skipped one. Did I skip one? It
2: forms the spirit of man. But then my comment was, if you. Just look at that. You don't think about it, but then if you stop, he's equating the creation of spirit within each of us with the formation of the galaxy, the universe. Yeah. And with with the foundations of here, he's saying that each person is a miracle on the magnitude of creating the universe. I
0: think that. I agree. Saying. I agree, every person, every human being is a miracle in and of him or herself. Verse 2 Behold What's behold mean? Y'all know Pay special attention This is really important I will make Jerusalem It's not will make It's am making Am making Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. Boy, that's, that's deep. I'll make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. What happens when somebody who's a rational, normal human being gets drunk? They lose the capability to think clearly. They stagger. They—it's uh, this mess. And essentially, that's what God is saying. When they lay siege against Jerusalem, it's not Jerusalem is going to suffer; they're going to suffer. Time about the end of days. And in the Tanakh, my Hebrew published Bible, they have a comment at the bottom that says this is talking about the end of days. So they agree this is an end times prophecy. hmm we're
2: getting close to it aren't so <laughs> was it also fulfilled during the Roman times
0: no this has never been fulfilled this I'm um, talking about the end of days they equate it to the same time period as Isaiah 2 so let's go back to Isaiah 2 so they know
2: it was at 70.
0: They knew it wasn't 70 A.D. That's right. They know it's about the establishment of the Messianic kingdom on earth. Isaiah 2.2 Oops. Wait a minute. I have three questions or something out there. and Go to me, Glenn. Let's see. Oh, Sam, who lives in California, wants to assure everybody California is still above water. <laughs> He lives in Orcutt, California, just outside Vandenberg. And Edmund says, Copernicus was born and died, and he gives the dates, 19 February 1473. He wasn't there, but he knows. <laughs> and 24 May 1543 in Royal Prussia, a region that had been part of the kingdom of Poland since 1466. A polyglot and polymath, he obtained a doctorate in canon law and was a mathematician, astronomer, physician, classic scholar, translator, governor, diplomat, and economist. And they put him to death because he said the Earth revolves around the sun. Mm. Yep. Okay. So I hey, think it. Yes, Uh
2: huh. You're you're mixing him up. He he uh, he he wasn't put to death. They house arrested Galileo, but they didn't kill him. Ah. They didn't kill. They didn't kill Copernicus. It's somebody else uh, you're thinking of. Sorry. Got my facts wrong. Okay. What, he, he died at 70. and he, um, They sort of had this strange um, dual thing where as long as he didn't go into the theological end, they accepted what Copernicus said as long as he kept it in a separate box for the theology.
0: Good. Thank you. Remember when I first mentioned, I said, I think it was Copernicus. Now I know it was not, but it was somebody. It was somebody. Okay. Isaiah 2.2. 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. No, the end of days, the al-yamim the same time that the Torah sages say Zechariah 12 is talking about. That the mountain of the Lord's house, the Messianic kingdom, shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. Those are the other remaining kingdoms on earth. They all will be subservient to Messiah, and all nations shall flow to it. That's the same time period we're talking about. Let's go to Psalm 82. Psalm 82. Verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. So when is that talking about? That God will inherit all the nations? That's at the end of days. This is a reference to the Messianic kingdom. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 34, verses 1 to 3. Isaiah 34, verses 1 to 3. Isaiah chapter 34, verses 1 to 3. Come near, you nations, to hear, and heed, you people. Let the earth hear and all that is in it. The world and all things that come forth from it. Is that talking about one little people or one little area? No, that's universal. For the indignation of the Lord is against whom? All nations. And his fury against all their armies. Has this been fulfilled in the past? No. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. Again, it may be written as if it's past tense, but it's prophetic perfect. And their slain shall be thrown out, meaning not buried. So it eats the bodies, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. Yep. Their stint shall rise from their corpses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. Yepper. That's about the same time period. Let's go to Joel chapter 3. Joel, which in Hebrew is Yael, the Lord is God. It's one of those they call the minor prophets. Not because they're not important, because the books are short. Joel chapter 3 verse 2. Well, oh, it may as well start in verse 1. Why not? Verse 1 tells us when. For behold, in those days and at that time. What does at that time mean? The tribulation period, right? When I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations. Which nations? All nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. To understand this first, you have to know what Jehoshaphat means. The Lord, the Lord will judge. So, why is God gathering all the nations into the Jezreel valley? To judge them. The valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage, Israel. Whoa. What did the nations do to get God's anger up? They've come against Israel in the last days. They've divided the land. Ooh. If you're watching the news, you can see we're getting close to this. Whom they have scattered among the nations, they've also divided up my land. Mm-mm-mm. Let's go to Haggai. In Hebrew, Haggai, my festivals. Which relates in times prophecy to the feasts and festivals of the Lord.
2: One of the prophecy guys, I can't remember, wrote a book about the consequences of the the two-state solution and, you know, bad events like, you know, um, uh, hurricanes and
0: Oh, yeah, that was right. Koenig. Yeah. Koenig wrote that book. Was it called Eye to the Beholder? Something. Or Eye to Eye? Something about an eye. Something about eye, eye. But he shows every time we do something bad to Israel, we're about to get it.
2: Mm-hmm. Something mm-hmm.
0: happens, yeah. Something bad happens. So prepare yourselves. Yep. Because Biden has just told Netanyahu that he's not allowed to keep pushing south in Hamas because that causes... Innocent civilians have to leave their homes. So. But
2: that's not happened in Israel. <laughs> Nobody, no innocent civilians
1: have in
0: So let us just brace ourselves because it's coming. Yeah, that's kind of what he said. is you, you just watch what's going on. Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? End times prophecy. Once more. Then he says, it is a little while. Well, it's a little while to God. To God, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years like a day. For us, it's been a long time. I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. When does that take place? That great shaking. That's in the tribulation period. And I will shake all nations. That is when that earthquake happens in Israel. We feel it here in the United States if we're still here. And they shall come to the desire of all nations. That's a term for Messiah. That is many nations will turn to God at that point And say "Ooh, there really is a God in heaven. And I will fill this temple with glory says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. And the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. What's that significance? The silver is mine and the gold is mine. What have the nations been using the silver and gold to make? Idols. When they turn back to God, it's a prophecy of no more idolatry. They won't be given the gold and silver to make those idols anymore. Yeah. In Zechariah chapter 14... I hesitate to read this because we're so close to it, but I'm going to anyway. Because I have no self-control. Okay. <laughs> Where
1: is it now?
0: Zechariah 14, verses 1 to 3. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. What's the day of the Lord? Begins with the rapture and resurrection, then the seven years of the tribulation period, then the messianic kingdom, till the new heavens and the new earth. And your spoil will be divided in your midst. That word spoil means plunder or booty. In Ezekiel 38 it says they're coming for what? To take a spoil. To take plunder. To take booty. But then in verse 2 we get all the way to the end. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. That requires the United United Nations, doesn't it? The city shall be taken, the house is rifled. In other words, Israel is not going to give up half of Jerusalem, so the world is going to come to take it, to take it. The women ravished, have we seen any of that in the October 7th invasion? Yes half the city shall go into captivity but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle that is what Zechariah chapter 12 verse 2 is about I will make the nations of the world lose their ever-loving mind they're going to come against Jerusalem and according to Psalm 2 is to keep the Lord from returning because they think if they can just defeat Jerusalem put all the Jewish believers to death then they can't call out for Messiah to come but what does it tell us in Revelation 12 let's turn over to Revelation 12 reminds me of the old TV show Hogan's Heroes have you seen Hogan's Heroes when they asked Werner Klemperer to play clink, he said, I'll do it on one condition, that the Germans never win at anything. And that's what's going to happen in Revelation 12. Satan's going to do everything he can do, and he's not going to win at anything. So Revelation 12 verse 13, now when the dragon saw they'd been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, that's Israel, who gave birth to the male child, that's Messiah being born in the hearts of the people. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. We read before, how long does the false Messiah have after he's kicked out of heaven? Three and a half years. That she might fly into the wilderness to her place, that's Petra. Where she's nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. This has got to drive Satan crazy. He's got three and a half years to get it done and for three and a half years he can't touch her. Yes ma'am. Why is Satan kicked out of heaven? Let's go back to Revelation chapter 12 verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought. They want to conquer God in heaven. Yeah, so they take up the sword and they go to throw God off the throne. And verse eight says they didn't prevail. How's that for a nice soft? They got kicked out of heaven. No is the place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. How do you think his raising a sword against God was a good idea? No. So it hasn't happened yet. Has not happened yet, no. Verse 15, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood. That's an army. He sends the army of the false Messiah to catch the Jewish people before they can make it to Petra. How long of a flight is it from Jerusalem to Petra? I've never walked it, but I have driven it. Well, I was on the bus that was driving it, and we had to stop overnight. So in a bus, traveling highways, you can't get there in a day. Imagine how long it takes on foot. So they think we can catch her. And God says, no, you can't. So verse 15, the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman. that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened up its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon has spewed out of his mouth. (laughs) Think back to your watching of the movie, The Ten Commandments, when they made the golden calf and Moses threw down the, the plates what happened to the earth? It opened up and swallowed up those who had taken part in the idolatry. Same thing's going to happen. There's going to be an earthquake, and the earth is going to swallow up these armies. Verse 17, and the, woman was enra- the dragon was enraged with the woman. Satan is enraged with Israel. Went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. Why is his rage against her offspring, the believers? He's not after the non-believers. Because who's going to call for Messiah to return? The believers. Go back to Zechariah. We're still in verse 2. Oops, I have three more comments. How shall we prepare in reference to brace ourselves and get ready? The answer, of course, is repent. repent. That's right. Sanctify yourself. Get right in the eyes of God. That's how we do it.
1: Daily.
0: Trust and obey. Yeah, trust and obey daily. So in verse 2, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness. That symbol of a cup is used a lot in scripture. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 51. That cup is a symbol of God's wrath. So when the nations of the world come to destroy Israel and wipe out the Jewish people and and destroy Jerusalem and take it by force, God is not amused. Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah chapter 51 verse 17. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling. That's the same as the cup of drunkenness. It's the same kind of trembling out of fear. When the Lord God stands up and says, "That's it. I've had it. You're toast. You've drunk the dregs of a cup of trembling and drained it out." That means God's judgment against Jerusalem comes to an end, and then He turns His gaze to the nations of the world. Go to Jeremiah chapter 13. Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 13. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the king who sits on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. The very same symbolism. Now dashed them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together. Says Lord, I will not pity, nor spare, nor have mercy, but will destroy them. That's talking about Babylon destroying Jerusalem of old. But it's the same symbolism that God is now giving to the nations that have come against Jerusalem in the day of the Lord. God bless you. Jeremiah twenty-five. Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 15 to 17. God bless you. This prophecy was fulfilled historically. But you'll see how much it looks like Zechariah 12. What has happened before, comma will happen again god bless you verse 15 says for thus says the lord god of israel to me take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom i send you to drink it and they will drink and stagger and go mad that's the drunkenness because of the sword that i will send among them Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me. And it goes on and on for verse after verse after verse as Jeremiah goes out to all the nations to say, you have sinned against the Lord and judgment time has come. So it's not the same event, but it's the same symbolism, that cup of drunkenness, which is actually not drunkenness, it's reeling out of fear, it's terror. When you come under the the literal judgment of the Almighty God, it is a terrifying thing. The same chapter, Jeremiah 25, go to verse 27. Therefore you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts. Oh, what's happened before will happen again. The God of Israel, drink, be drunk, and vomit. Fall and rise no more, because of the sword which I will send among you. What does the sword represent? War. War. And it shall be, if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you shall certainly drink. Meaning God's going to take away their choice. Do I want to make war against Israel, or don't I? Yeah, they're going to. For behold, I begin to bring calamity on the city which is called by my name, and should you be utterly unpunished? You shall not be unpunished, for I will call for a sword and all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord of hosts. So after Israel has suffered its judgments at the hand of the Lord, then God's going to turn his eye onto the nations that have abused Israel. Jeremiah 51, verse 7. Jeremiah 51, verse 7. And see if this reads like Revelation. Jeremiah 51, verse 7. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drink. The nations drank her wine, therefore the nations are deranged. Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. Is that historical? Or is it talking about in the day of the Lord when Babylon's judgment comes? The answer is what? Both. Both. Exactly. You know, people get frustrated. How come God lets things be fulfilled more than once? Well, that's the nature of God. Let's see, we have another 10 seconds, so let's go back to Zechariah and look at verse 3. And it shall happen in that day, what day? Day of the Lord. That I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces though all nations of the earth are gathered together against it. Is there any doubt in your mind about whether the nations will prevail against Jerusalem in the day of the Lord? If you do, just let it go because there is no doubt. We come back next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up in verse 4. Man, does verse 4 have a lot to say about what's going to happen in the day of the Lord. So next time, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 4.